few weeks, we've been working together through this series on 1 Peter. We're calling it Full of Hope. What we're trying to do is we're trying to unpack what Peter has said to Christians who are living in very difficult circumstances in the first century. Uh, There's a degree of persecution that's taking place, and these people are suffering. And then as quickly as possible, we're, we're trying to make some appropriate and proper application of his teaching to our lives, because some of us are living in difficult circumstances also. Peter tries to shore up their faith and and boost their hope in the midst of some fairly intense persecution and suffering. In the context of his letter, the the first century background to 1 Peter is really important to us just to help us identify with, with what's going on here. Remember, he's writing to believers in five different provinces of Asia Minor, which he which he. Uh, gives us in the first verse or two of of chapter 1. And many of them are are suffering. And just that little tidbit of historical background information helps us to identify with the rest of what Peter has to say because we know that he's writing to to people who are are afflicted and they're they're suffering and they're in pain and, and they're living in difficult circumstances. And we know that many of us are in the same boat. For different reasons. Maybe not persecution for our faith, but for other reasons. We're toughing it out. And we need the Word of God to teach us. So I have, a, I have an inkling this morning. It's just a little inkling that what Peter said to them back in the first century is exactly what God wants to say to us today. And I'll tell you that I have wrestled hard with this passage of Scripture that Rob read a moment ago. I've wrestled hard this week. And I could could tell you that I'm challenged by the different interpretations given to this passage of Scripture by a number of commentators who are well-respected New Testament scholars. I could tell you that, and it'd be true. I could also tell you that I wrestled with this passage because uh, the Canadian milieu... Uh, is so much different than it was back then in the year 2015. This is ancient literature, and it's hard to understand, and there'd be an element of truth to that too. But the bottom line is, I mean, I struggled with this passage of God-breathed, Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture because it talks about submission, Is there anybody here who finds it really easy to submit to all things at all times in every way? None of us find submission very easy. And so I just kind of put that out on the table, you know, show our cards and say, yeah, here we go, tough passage of scripture on submission. I don't like to submit. I like to do things my own way. Lord, help us, right? You say amen to that? Okay, so now we're ready to go. Let's work our way through this passage together, and maybe, in all honesty, we can come up with some application that will help us all. So first of all, let's look at the command to submit. Verses 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 
So let's, let's just try and understand why Peter gives us this wide-ranging, kind of all-encompassing command to obey. For one thing, submission is decreed by God the Father. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. It's a command. It's not really an option. Peter's not just kind of sharing his, his a longing, the longing of his heart over a cup of tea. No, sir, this is a command from God himself. Christians are to obey civil authority. That's the rule. That's the general rule of life for a believer. We need to obey the authorities. Christians don't submit to human institutions simply because they feel like it. Most times I don't feel like it. Or because they have compliant personalities. Not all of us do. Or because the institutions themselves have coercive powers. No. We instead look to God first. And we submit for the Lord's sake. We submit because he said so. And what makes this this matter, this issue, so urgent is what Peter has just said in the previous few verses that we've covered in the previous few weeks. Let's have a look again at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, where he says to them in this encouraging note, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now, now that you have faith in Jesus, now that you've committed your lives to Christ, you are the people of God. You remember it then in verse 11, he goes on to say that, therefore, as aliens and strangers in the world, this is how we ought to live. We're aliens and strangers among the social and political institutions of the world in which we live. So why in the world should we have any allegiance to them is the the natural question that would come up as people are reading this letter for the first time or or hearing it read in their assembly in those five provinces of of Asia Minor. They're thinking to themselves, okay, so I'm, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner. My citizenship is in heaven. I'm not of this planet. Oh, good, I can do as I like. Uh Uh-uh. So Peter's moving in now to answer that that hypothetical response to 1 Peter chapter 1. If we're sojourners and exiles and our citizenship is in heaven, why should we worry about obeying the laws of the land in which we live? Right? We march to the beat of a different drummer. We serve a higher king. Well, that's still not reason enough to disobey the law. Remember what he said in verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or the unbelieving neighbors that you have honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so if we go about breaking all the rules and and not living in submission to the civil authorities or to the government, we just decide on our own how we're going to go around the roundabouts disobey the traffic laws and just drive however we want, then unbelievers, the Gentiles, the unbelieving neighbors that we have, will have even more reason not to follow Jesus. 
and point their fingers and say, look at those Christians. That guy says he follows Jesus and he's breaking the law like, like there's no tomorrow. One author has said, Christians are not self-assertive rebels who kick against the regulations in government and business and schools and home. We are eager to be supportive and compliant whenever it does not compromise our commitment to Christ, our King. And that is a key phrase in that quote as far as I'm concerned. Wherever it does not compromise our commitment to Christ, our King. If it does, then I'm following Jesus. I'm going with Jesus. And let the chips fall where they may. So the the purpose of civil government, uh, and this is not a lecture in civil government, (laughs) it's a biblical perspective on the government that, that, that is over us. But the purpose of civil authority from a biblical perspective, and according to 1 Peter chapter 2, is to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right in all of the implications on both sides. So government is supposed to deter evil and carry out retribution against those who do evil. On the other hand, governments are also supposed to commend those or praise those who do good. So now, okay, obviously, I mean, very obviously, the, the, the purpose of government and the expanse of government and the, the practice of government has gone way beyond what Peter ever envisioned in 1 Peter chapter 2 and where the Roman law prevailed in the first century. It's gone way beyond that, and that is the reason why there is so much debate in the literature about how these verses ought to be applied in 2015. Do you see that? I mean, I I don't think the biblical writers had any idea that government would be so big and so large and so, so pervasive as it is now. But the general rule still applies. Submit yourselves. But to what extent do we obey the civil authorities? Is it ever acceptable to disobey? Or is it ever desirable to disobey civil or municipal or federal government? I mean, what 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 do these verses mean for Canadian believers? And would the application be any different in China or Syria? I wonder what these verses would have suggested to evangelical Christians in 1943 in Nazi Germany. Rob mentioned it a moment ago. What, what, what do these verses mean for us as we view a new curriculum that will touch the lives of every public school child for years to come? How do we, how do we, how do we respond to that? What, what do we do with that? I, I wish I had all the answers. Uh, I, and I know that none of you believe that I do. Uh, 
I wish I had all the answers, but I, I don't. So we have to say, suffice it to say this morning that as a general rule, Christians are expected to obey the government for the Lord's sake. And, and somehow, when we submit ourselves to legitimate governments, to the human authorities that God has placed over us, somehow, in some way, in some divine and perhaps even supernatural fashion, we are actually bringing glory and honor to God through our obedience. Submission is decreed by God the Father. Furthermore, submission is implanted by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, again, Peter tells us that, uh, right at the beginning of the book, uh, that we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. So the work of the Trinity is, is, in our lives, is designed to do what? To bring obedience to Jesus Christ. That's, that's what it's aiming at. We're chosen and we're sanctified for what? For obedience to Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God seeks to establish the agreement to submission in our hearts. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's working to, to solicit agreement in us to obey God. The willingness and the ability to submit is actually implanted in us by the Holy Spirit. You see? Because, because the willingness and the eagerness to obey is not naturally there. Have you noticed that? It's just not naturally there. We need help. And, and, and that help comes from the Holy Spirit of God. He's the one who implants this in us. He sanctifies us. 1 Peter 1, verse 2. So that we obey Jesus. That's what it's driving at, obedience. What's more, submission was also sanctioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And there are many examples of this, but the one example I want to share with you this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 22. And that's the story where these religious leaders are, you know, they're conferring together and trying to think up ways of, of, of bringing Jesus down. Let's trap him in his words. What can we do that will trap him in his words? Oh, I know. Let's ask him a question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus? <laughs> they thought they had him cornered. Wow. Jesus says, okay, show me the coin that's used to pay the taxes. So they flush out a coin and say, well, here it is. He says, whose portrait is it? Whose inscription? They said, well, it's Caesar's. Jesus said, okay, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. And they were stumped. They didn't know what to do or what to say. But see, the very tone and fiber of his life on earth was one of acknowledging legitimate God-ordained authority and submitting to it. And he said, give to, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So he's, he's actually affirming the legitimacy of this, this human civil authority and telling his disciples to do the same thing. You pay your taxes. And give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. 
My son is an accountant, a, a professional accountant in the city, chartered accountant. He's a partner in a small firm in the city. And from time to time, he'll, you know, as we're having lunch or coffee together, just talking, he said, Dad, you wouldn't believe what some of my clients ask me to do from time to time to save them money. They want, they want me to break the law so that they can save a few bucks on their taxes. And it happens over and over again. Now, obviously, he doesn't tell me who those clients are or what businesses they are. That would be extremely unprofessional. But the fact remains, Jesus told his disciples to pay the taxes. And I'm pretty sure they weren't as high as mine in South Windsor. (laughs) By the way, I'll be taking an offering after... Never mind. (laughs) Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So, submission is decreed by the Father... It is implanted by the Holy Spirit, and it's sanctioned by Jesus the Son. So, obvious question. If living a submissive life, living a surrendered life, is that important to the triune God that we serve? Should it not also be important to us? It really should. But nobody finds submission easy And I'd be the first one to line up for that. It's not easy. So let's have a look at the sphere of submission. To whom or to what should we submit? Good question. Well, the Bible says that husbands and wives are supposed to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. So there's the sphere of home life, family life. Uh, The church is required to submit to Jesus as the head of the church. And that then in terms in turn, becomes the model for Christian wives. So there's the realm of the church. Members of the local church are exhorted to obey their spiritual leaders and submit to them. And that's a scary one. But that deals with the church. It's part of our lives. All of us are commanded to submit to God and resist the devil, right? And then here in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're told that we need to Uh, submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to the human institutions and specifically government because that's in the context, the emperor and the governors that he sends. Obey the government. So the scope or the sphere of submission is pretty enormous, isn't it? I mean, it's broad. Covers home and family, covers government and everything in between. Covers the church, covers my walk with God. Nowhere in Scripture is overt insurrection against the authorities ever recommended. Now, sure, there there may be instances where we need to stand our ground. There may come a time when we need to disobey a civil law in order to obey God's law. If those are the only two options, obey the civil authorities and disobey God, or obey God and disobey the civil authorities, which one will we choose? So, and, and that has happened in the past, and I'm sure it will happen again just the way things are going. You know, it, you just wonder, at what point do I have to draw the line? Rob said, hopefully, it, you know, those times won't come to North America, but I wonder. So we say, uh, standing on our laurels and, and believing in the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we will not buckle under by compromising our convictions or renouncing our faith. No, sir. 
We, we won't obey a certain law if it is a direct violation of the Word of God and the law of God. We won't do it. But, but you know, really, realistically, those are rare exceptions in Canada and not the rule. Thanks be to God that we live in a country that's as free and as democratic and as wonderful a, a country as Canada is. We praise God for that. The way to live honorably, Peter says, is to submit. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. He says in verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I love that verse. I'm a simple guy. I like simple things. And when it's that clear, for this is the will of God, I say, okay, well, this must be the will of God. He tells us very plainly, this is the will of God. You should do this because this is God's will for you. Okay, thank you. Oh, and by that, I also get to put foolish people to quiet by being obedient to God. That's just a bonus. <laughs> and in the next two verses, Peter rehearses the principle of submission. Verses 16 and 17, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And I think that's the principle right there. Live as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So, so because, Peter makes the point that because of the gospel, because of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us in his death and his resurrection, we're free people. Hallelujah! We've been set free from the bondage of sin and death, and we are free. We're, we've been set free. We're free to live for righteousness. And we're free to live in devotion to God. We're free to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. We're no longer bound by sin. The dominion of sin no longer holds power over us. So indeed, instead of that, we, we, we live as servants of God. And that's the broad principle at work. Live as servants of God. We're free. We've been set free from, from this evil bondage to become free agents for God and serve Him over here. We're free to submit to God and live as servants. So enjoy life. Eat. Drink. Be merry. By all means. But don't use your freedom as an excuse to do what you want. Instead, live as servants of God. You should submit, not because your boss always does or says the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. I'm sure she doesn't. We submit rather because it is the will of God and because we are servants of God. That's why we submit. There's a, there's a greater principle, a higher principle, a more powerful principle at work here. And I can really be free in a job that I hate because I'm there to serve Jesus. I'm not there just to make money for the company. So we should press ahead as servants of God. Press ahead as servants of God. All that I do in my work world and, and the way I live in this free country, I do as a servant of God. And next, Peter gives us a wonderful example of submission to learn from. In verses 18 through 21. Servants. 
Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Boy, haven't times changed? We no longer have servants and masters like they did in the first century, but what Peter wrote here, what Peter wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit does have application for us today. We may not be servants or slaves, but we are employees, many of us, who may in fact feel like slaves <laughs> at some point in time during the week. <laughs> but many of us here work for an employer or a corporation or a company of some kind, and, and we're, we serve as employees to that organization, and we're under the authority of some, somebody, a manager, a supervisor, a CEO, or tyrant, whatever the case may be. What is Peter's counsel to us as employees? Servants, employees, be subject to your masters, your employers, with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, not only to the ones who almost always give you an extra day off whenever you ask for it, but also to the unjust. <laughs> this passage makes you want to cry. I mean, up until now, right, you really wanted to follow God and obey the Bible, but you're not sure about this, <laughs> right? Oh, me too. I'm first in line again. It's hard. Some of this stuff is just hard. Why can't it all be easy and emotional and that sort of stuff? Because it ain't. Never has been, never will be. God said, come, let us reason together. In other words, let's think about these things hard. And it's really tough for us to read some of these verses. Our, our Canadian frame of reference is so different from, from 1 Peter. That's 1st century. This is 21st century. Our perspective is so Western, so 21st century, so Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms... That, that, that we sometimes want to just rewrite God's word to fit our, you know, modern day, sophisticated, educated perspective. We want God's word to back us up in our rebellion against authority, be it big or be it small. We twist scripture. Well, that's not really what it means. Yeah. Well, that was in the first century A.D., we don't live in a pastoral, you know, ancient society anymore that doesn't really apply. So, so really, you're the one that's going to decide what, what is true and applicable and what isn't? From the Word of God? Good, whew, good luck. 
we must let God's word just speak for itself. As hard as it may be sometimes, just let it speak to you. Because it's always true. Peter goes on to say in verse 21, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Are you kidding me? I don't want to follow in his steps. His steps led to the cross. So the natural man in me is just going, Oh, no, I'm good. You know, I'm good. I got Jesus. I don't want discipleship. Christ's substitutionary sacrifice in which he gave his life for sinners is unique and, 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 and unrepeatable. So that's not the example that we're to follow. We can't, we can't atone for anybody's sin. And yet those he has saved may follow in his example when they suffer unjustly. That's the part we can follow. Jesus suffered unjustly. We can suffer unjustly also if God calls us to do that. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Oh my goodness. Peter's encouragement for Christians to be submissive, to be obedient, to live a surrendered life, now takes on a a Christological foundation. He uses Jesus and his life and his death as, as, as a foundation for his teaching. The submissive sufferings of Jesus are seen as exemplary, something we could follow Just as Jesus suffered righteously for doing God's will, so Christians, some of whom we saw on the screen today, will suffer righteously for doing God's will. There were more martyrs for the faith in the 20th century than there were in all the other centuries combined. I don't know what they'll say at the end of the 21st century, but I suspect that will be even greater. When he suffered, Jesus did not threaten. Oh, he didn't threaten anybody when he suffered. And it's so common for us to respond in retaliation to people who are critical of us or, or, or uh, unjustly accuse us of things. It's just so, it's so natural, again. It's so old mannish, it's so Adam of us to respond in retaliation. But the example of Jesus is the lamb of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He could do this because he kept entrusting himself to God. And he also kept entrusting those who mistreated him and reviled him and spat upon him and whipped him and betrayed him. He entrusted them also to God. 
because he knew that God would do what is right at the end. And he always does. So likewise, believers, knowing that God judges justly, we're able to release evildoers. We're able to release people who do unjust things or evil things to us. We can release them to God and know that in the end, He will do what's right. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, Romans 12, 19, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Listen, listen, every wrong deed in the universe will either be covered by the blood of Jesus or judged justly by God in the day of judgment. Every, every single wrong deed in the universe will either be covered by the blood of the Lamb, or it will be judged justly by God Himself on the day of judgment. So either way, He's got it covered. Back off, buster. You don't need to be judging, and you don't need to be, we don't need to be avenging anything. God's got this covered. It'll either be covered by the blood of the Lamb or God will work with it on the day of judgment. So He's good. Doesn't need your help. Doesn't need my help judging people or getting back at people or taking vengeance on people as much as we'd like to. When you're insulted... Don't retaliate. When you suffer, make no threats. Instead, learn to live a surrendered life. A surrendered life. At home, school, in the marketplace, in the church, your marriage. Live a surrendered life. Entrust yourself, entrust your life, entrust your employment, entrust your finances, entrust your church, entrust it to God who will do what is right. Submission is not a four-letter word. It's just the way Jesus lived out His life. And so, should we? Let's pray together.